Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 97. On today's show, we talk about liminal places and more specifically underpasses with Rebecca Lambert. We also dig into the archaeology of the future. Sorry for the pun, but here's another one. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. And joining me today is Rebecca Lambert. Rebecca, how's it going? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So... All right. Well, let's talk about liminal spaces because you were turned on to us by one of our producers and I, I didn't actually talk to you or anything. And all I see is what we have you fill out as your, I guess, introduction to the to the podcast and, and what we're going to talk about. And I'll tell you what, it was so interesting to me because I didn't understand or know about anything that you put in there <laughs> a lot of times. It's funny you should say that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Which, which is really good because a lot of times we talk about this on one of my other shows and we just recorded these guys on the Architect podcast and they, they use this brand new technique that we had never heard of before and, and applied it to archaeology. Whereas a lot of times we talk to people that are using existing and well-known techniques and then applying them to archaeology in new and different ways. But what I like about what you've got here, and we're, we'll talk about, we're going to dive right into this here in a second, but what I like what you've got here is, I mean, I personally have never, and I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I personally never really thought about the things that you brought up here, which really is original research, which I love. And that's hard to find, I think, these days in archaeology. it's People are rehashing old things or answering new questions about old data sets and things like that. But this sounds like something that very few people have probably thought about in the past. And so I think it's going to be great for our listeners to learn more about it. So the, the key thing to the key term to what you're talking about here, and you can find Rebecca's Twitter handle in, in the show notes here, and you can you can follow what she's doing on there. But the key thing is liminal places. So this this podcast is for, really, it's for a general audience, people that aren't necessarily archaeologists. So can you first define what a liminal space is or a liminal place is? Yeah, of course. So basically, the term liminal is derived from the Latin word for threshold, which is limina. Um, and that can signify, and it can signify something that's on the periphery of everyday society and denote the space amidst different strata of reality. And liminality, as archaeologists, we discuss liminality a lot, especially within prehistoric contexts. I'm primarily an, a Neolithic archaeologist, so liminality can be considered within human and architectural con- contexts especially within we look at ritual with liminality 
a great deal. And the way that I'm approaching liminality is looking at it from, I suppose you could say shamanic perspectives. Okay. By descending into a trance-like condition, shamans enter into liminal states. And the way that I consider liminality is these permeable places. Traditionally, within prehistory, Places such as passage graves and caves are considered permeable places, places where the living were in close contact with the past, the present, and perhaps even the future. Hmm. And I actually believe that modern underpasses or subways can be deemed liminal places. So, yeah. Okay. So you you mentioned that you're you're and I hear archaeologists say this all the time. They say, "Well, I'm a primarily a, a this archaeologist. However, I'm studying this thing that's completely unrelated, or it seems <laughs> to that thing that I just said I do." So you said you're primarily a Neolithic archaeologist. How the heck did you get interested in underpasses? What led to that journey? Well, when I when I say I'm a Neolithic <laughs> archaeologist, I mean I all of my projects, apart from oh, actually no, I transgress. Two of my four projects. <laughs> do sort of step away from the Neolithic mm-hmm. quite some distance. They they deal with uh, future tech, vaporware and the hum. Oh, okay. But that's for another time, the dialects of the hum. Yeah. My two main projects at present, paranoid architecture and underpasses, liminal places. Although when people first hear those titles, they think, crikey bang on 21st century but actually from a research perspective although I'm looking at these 20th and 21st century architectural constructs the the reasoning behind the research is tethered quite strongly to the Neolithic in Britain the Neolithic is considered to have come into being roughly around 4,000 before common era and went up to approximately 2,200 before Common Era. So, you know, a great expanse of time. So within the Neolithic period in Britain, but also within continental Europe and other places, we start to see real sort of physical evidence towards potential ritual activities. We see, we start getting these most amazing cairns, burial chambers, tombs being created that many still stand today. And we have to try and ponder why were they they built? We know that some of them hold the remains of people. Mm -hmm. Some of them don't. That could be because those remains have been removed for whatever reason. But also the of the tombs that have been excavated where remains have been found, when we consider the the number of people that were probably living within British Isles during the Neolithic period, well, there were far more people roaming the islands than are found within these tombs. So then we have to think, well, how did these people end up in tombs and in cremated burials and others didn't where a all the other people. Sure. So then we have also these huge monuments coming into being. So Stonehenge is known around the world, but we also have the Ring of Brodga and the Stones of Stenness up in 
the, uh, the Orkney Isles, which is just off the coast of northern Scotland. We're very lucky to have lots of different sites. I won't reel off a list. People can have a look or, <laughs> you know, um, contact me via Twitter. And we have to start thinking, well, why are these beginning to be built during this period and we then start thinking well we're starting to evidence very sophisticated societies being formulated and what we have to remember as well is that during the same time as the Neolithic is occurring in Britain if we look to Egypt the Egyptians are creating the most amazing monuments as well the pyramids of Giza and so on so although they're they're coming into being at the same time, they look very different to what's occurring in Britain. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it's just different cultures manifesting their belief systems physically in different ways, which is really interesting too. Yeah. But back to the question of liminality. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I, I ponder and wonder. No, this is great. All right. So we, when we, as I said earlier, and we we look at liminality, these spaces on the periphery, spaces where things can happen, they, they, they can be potentially benevolent or malevolent spaces. Good things could happen, bad things could happen. And lots of people immediately think of liminal spaces being dark and underground. Now, that is true to some extent, but we also can see liminality in different contexts. The sea is a highly liminal space. Mm-hmm. But If we follow the general thinking of these dark subterranean spaces, I've spent a lot of my life in underpasses (laughs) from my childhood (laughs) through, yes, I was one of those people who used to hang about getting up to no good in underpasses. Right. (laughs) I always felt very safe in them as well and never really felt threatened. And yeah, it wasn't till the past sort of 18 months I was just wandering through one of my favourite underpasses, as you do. Right, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it just kind of struck me. I was like, well, hang on. This, you know, how is this underpass, although it's physically bigger than a passage tomb, you know, the logistics are kind of the same. Yeah, no one's buried in here, but it's long. It's fairly dimly lit. You know, it's kind of dark. And underpasses do you know lots of ritual activities take place within underpasses and then that just started my thinking and people were sort of saying well Rebecca you know are you going off on one or something and I was like no bear me out and the (laughs) the way that I have sort of started to formulate this theory was that underpasses are spaces that bear witness to ritual behaviors such as you know drinking drug-taking, communal gatherings, I've put this politely, acts of sexual congress. Um, And they all, you know, these are all done to initiate feelings of euphoria with the hope of achieving altered states of consciousness, altered states of reality, not unlike what occurs within ritual activities, even today in a number of modern cultures. So the underpass is a place where from myself, new identities and agendas can be forged and where all acts, however small, are significant. Mm-hmm. And when you're in within the underpass, it's there's a suspension of disbelief. I believe it's a link between the routine every day in more than one way, not just from the 
you know, the logistical of being able to move from one part of a town or city to another part. But it's also, it's a link with the more than human world. And as with all liminal spaces, underpasses have to be, you know, they have to be approached with caution. And I think that's not just from the sort of 21st century view of, oh, I'm a person going into an underpass. I, you know, something could happen to me. But also, you know, from these angles that we are going into something, I'm going underground, but I'm not quite underground. Mm -hmm. I am going, I'm traveling through different spheres. And regardless of the length of the underpass, you know, am I going to go through some sort of rite of passage on my journey through that underpass, no matter how small, am I going to be the same person emerging from the other side of the underpass as the person who entered? So, yes. Uh, hmm. I hope that kind of made sense. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Stop rambling. Well, <laughs> it, now, and I want to make sure that we're not, you know, we, we have a pretty large audience over in uh, in England and the, in the UK. But I do want to make sure that we're not encountering some sort of you know regional or cultural difference in language here. When I think of underpass, I'm thinking of all sort of spaces like basically under a road, right? Under a road where another road goes under that road or even where, you know, a river or something else goes under that road, yes. but they're like a bridge, right? Yes. And, and all those spaces under there. Is that, yes. you're, you're literally referring to those spaces, right? Yeah. So an underpass can be, as you said, going underneath a road, going underneath a river. It can also be with our motorways or freeways, the bridges that go underneath those. It's anything. So yeah. underpasses, are, although they may look slightly different, an underpass is an underpass no matter where it is in the world and there's no specificity um, as to that British underpasses are the only ones <laughs> I'm looking at. In fact, um, I'm currently running um, a phase of the project where I've had stickers, underpasses, liminal spaces, stickers created and 60 very lovely people who are based around the world, got a fair number in the within the UK, but also the USA, Canada, Australia, Portugal, throughout Scandinavia, taking these stickers, they're choosing their underpass and they're placing the stickers within the underpass. They're photographing it as soon as they've placed the sticker. And then every couple of weeks they go back and take another photograph to see whether or not those stickers are subjected to any ritual activities themselves, you know, whether that be veneration or desecration, or if indeed they're just left alone, nobody pays them any attention. It's just so, for myself, the fact that we've got this project that's now going all over the place is great. I mean, I'm, I'm still blown away that people are interested in this research because for you know when people you know people say oh archaeology and they think trenches um temples so I've been really blown away um by the enthusiasm of people and yeah and I think I don't know if that's because it's something quirky or niche or whether it's because they think like I do in the sense that 
archaeology is everywhere. You don't have to go to a crumbling castle. You don't have to travel miles and miles to be within and around archaeology. It's on your doorstep. And sure. the things, especially my projects, or all of them, they focus on the fact that they, they work within local regional, national and international contexts and the fact of connectivity, which for me is really important, more so now than ever with the world we're living in. And maybe it's because people can now look at their underpass or even think, oh, well, actually, that is archaeology. And if, if people can walk out their door and look around them and see you know, their landscapes in a different way, perhaps, in a, and explore them a bit more, engage with them a bit more, perhaps engage with others looking at these, then for me, that's really cracking. That's a, a really good thing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> well, that gives us a lot of places to go in segment two, and we are going to do that right in a minute when we come back from these messages. And I would, I just want to mention to our audience, if you're listening to this and you're about to hear some of these ads, these are ads for the Archaeology Podcast Network and services on there and services related to it. But they're also advertisements for people that support the Archaeology Podcast Network and businesses and things that we support and ones that want to support us and keep these things going because we have over 25 people that are basically volunteering to keep this network going and to bring information about underpasses that you never thought you would have to the wider <laughs> world to our 50,000 monthly downloads, right? <laughs> so oh, <crikey>. please, <laughs> know, right? please contact us. You can contact us at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com if you want to tell our audiences about what you do and your goods and services and help support archaeological education and outreach in the process. We'll be back in just a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code TAS. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market 
market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 97. And I am talking with Rebecca Lambert about underpasses. And one of the things you mentioned in the last segment when you were talking about the types of spaces that underpasses are and the kinds of things you can find there. And, you know, are you the same person when you go in and come out? And I was thinking about it. I, you know, I go under underpasses all the time. My wife and I actually live in an RV. So we, we go under obviously underpasses all the time, but even when you're doing it in in a car or something like that, you're in a nice, safe bubble space. But as a, I guess, an average white guy here in the United States, when I'm walking or on my bicycle or something like that, we used to live in downtown Reno, not exactly a scary city for as compared to other cities. But you know, when you're when you're walking or you're going down to one of those spaces, you are entering someone else's domain, really, because people live down there, people stay down there, they're dark, you might not be able to see exactly what's going on when you go through there, you don't know really what's going to happen, and whether or not you're going to make it out the other side. I'm being overly dramatic here. They're not all like that. Not at all, not at all, not at all. But you're totally right. That is the kind of, I never really thought about them as like another world, but you really are entering someone else's domain for the most yeah. part and, yeah. and coming out of that domain on the other side. And that's an interesting perspective on that. Yeah. And the thing is, I think with underpasses as well, it's this sense that we accept that, you know, they're an essential element for traversing the landscape, especially within cityscapes. But, you know, we don't enjoy moving within them right you know we we do approach them with trepidation you know we we don't you don't really see many people apart from myself <laughs> strolling leisurely <laughs> through an underpass you know they're they're not the the realm of the flaneur so to speak um we do try and navigate them as quickly as possible and a friend of mine paul debostic he says you know that they are still replete with our fears and anxieties, you know, about venturing below the surface. That's something that's deeply inherent within humans, I think. Right. And, you know, underground spaces, you know, they're dark. They're full of dark, invisible recesses. You know, they harbour potentials for subversion, you know, poorly lit often, as you said. And it can be a restricted space. Even if you're in a big underpass, you're still restricted because you're restricted from your movements. You can only go one of two ways, forward or back. Yeah. So it can often feel claustrophobic, scary, you know, unnerving. But also turning that on its head, they can also be considered, you know, slower, calmer, perhaps even safer in some respects especially if you're in a pedestrian underpass if you've if you've come from a main road 
a very noisy main road, which can be very dis- disorientating and quite frightening, especially if you've got large trucks and fast cars coming past you. And then you you dive into, you, you, you delve into this underpass and it's suddenly the, the sound, it, it goes very quiet. Mm-hmm. Now, for a number of people, that could be just as, you know, unnerving. For myself, I find it almost meditative. And it's this sense of you're, you're permeating. You're coming from one realm and then you're permeating into this next realm. Right. It, it's amazing how, how quickly that attitude towards the space can switch, too, because I was just thinking, you know, I've been in many situations. Uh, I used to live in, say, the, mid, the upper Midwest in the United yeah. States, and you could get a you could get a hailstorm happening real fast, you yeah. know, or some sort of thing. And you're driving along the interstate or something. I used to have a motorcycle back then too. And tell you what, if you're on a motorcycle in a hailstorm, you're not going to have a really great day. Yeah. And it, and when you see an underpass and you, you, you can get under it and, and have that relative safety under there, it doesn't really matter what's going on under there. You're going in and you're going to feel safer. And, yeah. and, you know, and also when you have car repairs, if, if I have a flat tire on a hot day or something like that and I'm out on the highway, if I can see that underpass coming and I can make it, I'm probably going to go sit in the relative you know, safety and security of the shade and the, the enclosed area. Because we do like being, I don't know if it's from in the womb or what, but we like being enclosed. <laughs> we like yeah. being wrapped in things. Yes. And, and sometimes that can be comforting, like you said, you know, coming from one environment into the other. So it's really cool to, to think about that way. So so thinking about this, now that you're, you're, you're asking these questions, you're looking at these spaces in, a, in maybe a different way than people have in the past, what kind of data collection are you doing? You mentioned the stickers and sort of crowd, crowdsourcing some data around the world like that way, but what kind of questions and then how are you answering those questions of the day? Are you interviewing people? Are you actually doing any excavations on some underpasses? You know, how's that look? Well, so we're, I'm in the fairly early stages of the research. So at present, as I said, we're doing this stickering process so the photographs that are being sent back to me every couple of weeks but I've got individual files for each of the participants I'm asking them to probably wrap up photographing those underpasses by the end of October maybe November for people overseas because the post is slow at present so some of them haven't received their stickers yet then I'm going to be looking at the the biography, so to speak, of each sticker within its underpass to see if there's any noticeable change and then look at those in relation to the stickers from different parts, not just of the UK, but from the project as a whole. And then see if I can, through interpretation, if there's anything that's really blazing out to me. I mean, I must admit, one of my participants who is based in Wiltshire, which is in southern England, he's based not far from Stonehenge, actually. He's looking at a couple of underpasses in particular where we've had some really interesting activity just in the past couple of weeks where the in one of those underpasses, he placed the sticker directly on top of some graffiti and it's been removed. And so this is sort of making me ponder questions. We were discussing it the other day, actually. So who removed the sticker? Was it a council official? Well, if if they removed the sticker, then what's to say that they wouldn't have done something to try and cover up the graffiti? But that's quite an expensive business. And then I said, but also it could be that maybe the person who created that graffiti 
remove the sticker because by you placing the sticker on top of the graffiti, they might have thought that you were desecrating their art. So then it's, so we're sort of thinking outside the box, which is what I love to do. And then the other underpass where he's placed a sticker, the sticker's been removed, but all that graffiti has been covered over by paint. But it's quite interesting because the graffiti artists are coming back now and are already Hmm. starting to put their mark upon that underpass. And that's quite interesting because that is going to be the next stage of the project. So from probably springtime, I'm going to be looking at, I'm going to be comparing, so public commissioned art within underpasses as opposed to graffiti. Because that's that's something that I find really interesting, that we have this, mm-hmm. people going into underpasses and there's this fear, this trepidation. So when you get government funded, whether local or national government funded art within underpasses, why is that? Is that, is that done to distract the people who are using the underpasses? And if so, why? Is it to distract them from any potential fears or so on? And, and then with, with commissioned art, it can also, if they're looking at a lovely piece of, of art, maybe it removes that person from the underpass, transports them elsewhere. So in a way, We've then we're then back to these liminal spaces enabling altered states, movement equating to transition. But then when we look at graffiti, I mean, and I find graffiti incredibly interesting. Yeah, with with graffiti, are so tagging those those very specific visual icons for each artist, deeply symbolic, you know. So and often gangs have tags specific to themselves as well. And many underpasses around the world bear witness to this almost territorial art form, but it works on so many levels, you know, because if an artist is spraying their tag within an underpass, but but anywhere really, it's a visual indicator that that is their art, their space, their their territory, for want of a better term. And that message would be really clear and direct to other graffiti artists, street artists. And, you know, sometimes you will get, you know, underpass can be contested spaces because sometimes you will get rivals venturing into these spaces, which have been claimed in a way and declared out of bounds to them. And these rivals will then spray their tags over those of the resident artists. So so these can be considered declarations of insubordination by those who control the space so to speak but for those who aren't involved in street art culture gang culture but have but don't understand it but still have to use these underpasses you know these tags again offer really different meanings because it's highly likely that those individuals wouldn't be able to a you know, differentiate between or read, so to speak, the direct meaning of the individual tags, unlike people immersed within the culture. So these symbols, in effect, can't be considered icons outside of street art communities because they can't be read by everyone. Also, these non-participants wouldn't understand intergroup threats that were being made through 
war by art, so to speak, tags over other tags. But, Mm. you know, but the stylation alone, you know, coupled with the assumption that graffiti and tags are automatically linked with gang culture, that immediately makes these non-members anxious and leads to assumptions, you know. So the public immediately connects street art tags with deviant behaviour, which in turn emphasises any internal trepidations about having to navigate these spaces. And so if we look at all this and put it together, the the initial desire of the graffiti artists to highlight that the tagged space is their domain, that you can only pass through if you observe this and pay due deference, so to speak, whether knowingly or not, is still conveyed to the non-members of street art communities, but just through different means. You know, the public may not be able to read the work explicitly mm-hmm. or even understand if others are trying to upset the status quo, so to speak, within <laughs> the realm of the underpass, but they will be able to decipher that these markings were made by people from sp- specific cultural groups that are different to their own their other, perhaps even deviant. And and armed with that knowledge, they will understand that they mustn't tarry within those areas, that they have leave to traverse it, but only through the permission of others. So although those, those tags, they're not icons in a classic semiotic context, they can be read and understood but just within different nuanced forms. Hmm. So on multiple levels by people both within and without street art culture. So it's, so we're, we're coming into like different, we're approaching from a different angle. So we're going into liminality, we're going into control, contest, contestation, but through ways that perhaps people wouldn't initially think of. So this is going to be the next major thread of the of the project looking at art within underpasses and then from that the next stage which is still very much in its fledgling phase is I I don't know if you have these in the states but certainly in the UK um, parts of continental Europe a lot of underpasses have bollards at either end of them to sort of restrict access in a way so I guess it's to if people are on motorbikes, scooters, bicycles, they have to get off them in order to go through the underpass and so on. Uh, and also, I don't know if you have this problem in, in the States, but in in Britain, uh, our supermarkets, the shopping trolleys, <laughs> they, they we have people who like to just take the shopping trolleys and just oh, yeah. take them all over the place and leave them. <laughs> and uh, my friend Gallifrey Gallifre Reese, who wrote, fantastic book called car park life sorry for advertising but it's a really good book (laughs) he and he's got a new book coming out which i won't advertise but have a look that's fine yeah oh is it all right and yeah he's got another really good book coming out oh god and i've forgotten the title he's gonna kill me but just just google galafy reese he's great (laughs) and he does a whole section about supermarket trolleys (laughs) how they're brought out so nice but I'm digressing sorry we're looking at these underpasses 
they're blocking off certain people or they're controlling movement through them. And again, this takes us back to the Neolithic because with Henge monuments, so places like Stonehenge and so on, we can't see from the architecture now because it hasn't survived because it would have been built in wood, a lot of these palisades. But we can still tell from geophys and so on that there were palisades set up around not just within the Stonehenge landscape, but other landscapes that would have controlled movement. And it's highly contested as to why this was done, why this was done, social segregation. There are also arguments. I believe it that social segregation did take place for numerous reasons, but also that these were set up to segregate those not considered worthy of the secret knowledge that the special knowledge secret knowledge was kept within the realms or in the central realms of these monuments during specific rites so to speak festivals whatever word you want to use and that by having palisades by having very deep ditches very high banks that would have restricted access and viewing of these rites and rituals that these were implemented in order to protect this special knowledge and British archaeologist Julian Thomas has written about this at length and this is something that I'm starting to ponder in relation to underpasses that they're being sort of restricted because maybe there's uh, knowledge and things occurring in underpasses that only certain people are meant to know about. <laughs> hmm. Well, okay then. <laughs> And that leads me to so many more questions, and we're going to tackle those on the other side of the break in the final segment of this podcast. We'll be back in a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right, everybody, welcome back to the final segment of the Archaeology Show, episode 97 with Rebecca Lambert. And I got to say, one of the things I was thinking about when you were discussing all these ideas in the last segment, especially like the graffiti, and I'm thinking about the people that are down there leaving this graffiti and the back and forth with, you know, cleaning it up and then the tags on tags and the, the competition, things like that. I'm thinking another type of person, I should say, that inhabits these spaces are homeless people. Exactly. And people can be people can become homeless for any number of reasons. You know, sometimes it's mental illness, sometimes it's financial reasons, sometimes it's employment, you know, whatever the case may be, people can become homeless for different reasons. But especially in this weird time that we're in right now, where people have lost jobs, I mean, unemployment in the United States, the un unemployment benefits from the federal government that were extended and, and increased from what you would normally get have just ended this weekend as we're speaking. Yes. And there's no, there's a delay in Congress for, for getting that back again. And unfortunately, 
a lot more people could become homeless, especially since a lot of rents have been delayed but not forgiven. And when those start coming due and and things like that. So if you have an influx of not usually homeless people, I don't want to say the type of person that would be homeless. You know, that's not the way to characterize it. But an influx of people who are not used to being homeless. You know what I mean? People who are not used to that sort of financial situation, suddenly finding themselves in that sort of financial situation and then thrust into these spaces that were formerly formerly not theirs. Yeah. And now they're like, where else am I going to go? You know, I need shelter. I need to be here. I'm going to go there. I'm wondering what that clash is going to look like. Not to put this, not to put an academic spin on a horrible human situation, but I'm wondering what that's going to look like in the archaeological record, how this is going to impact those spaces and how ultimately it would impact your research on these spaces. Yeah, I mean, I was just, um, I was reading about the situation in the United States yesterday, and I can't remember whereabouts it was, but people were blocking the federal courthouse so that the landlords couldn't get in to start filing eviction (laughs) notice. I mean, crikey, yeah, it's terrifying. And and I'm... I'm quite open to admit I was homeless for a time uh, mm-hmm. a number of years ago. So um, I completely understand where you're coming from on this. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it works on a number of levels because as you said, these people who've been put in this, I mean, all people, nobody chooses to be homeless. Sure. So when you've got these people that because of, the coronavirus and so on have been put in these absolutely impossible situations and are in the very real position that they could be homeless within a matter of weeks, mm-hmm. if not a shorter period. Where do I go? Well, not everyone's lucky enough to have family or friends who can offer to put them up. So then you've, you think, well, you've got all these number of things you want to go somewhere where you feel safe, where you aren't visible, because if you're not visible, then there's less chance that you could perhaps be hurt in any way, you know, attacked or so on. But then you've then got the dichotomy. Well, the underpass, yes, I could go in there. It's dark. There are, I could go and hide in there, but then you've got that creeping inherent trepidation within but I don't want to go in there because it's dark I don't know what's in there there could be other people in there could be other homeless people in there there could be people taking drugs in there drinking heavily goodness knows what so Mm -hmm. you've got that but then looking at this within the archaeological record if we do get a huge influx of homeless people well I mean it can manifest in so many ways in, in the sense, certainly from a material culture point of view, you will find that there will be things such as, you know, sleeping, sleeping rough. You've, if, if you're lucky enough to get a sleeping bag, if you're having to eat out of cans and things, you, I mean, lots of people try and maintain and will use bins and things, but there aren't always bins available in that. And when you're on your uppers and you're having to eat out of a can, then, you know, sometimes you think the world's turned their back on you. You just think, well, you know, excuse my language, but sod it. I'm just going to throw the can on the floor <laughs> or right. whatever. Or, yeah, if someone gives me a couple of a couple of bucks expecting me to go and, and buy a sandwich, but I've had a really awful day. No, I'm going to go and buy a beer, you know, and fair yeah. play. So 
I think material from a material culture point of view, the sort of things that people gather around them, especially if they're homeless on a long-term perspective, we will be able to see. However, I think as well, though, because of the way that local and central governments work, it seems like they have no problem with making people homeless. Right. But they are quite happy to wipe away any physical evidence of homeless people on their streets. So when we say about the record, all these homeless people, we will be able to see it quite easily. I don't know if that will be the case because I think that, and this is an awful thing to say, but that, because in Britain we have councils, I'm not sure what you have in the United States, so we have our local councils and things. We'll just physically wipe away all evidence of these people from their streets because they want to present in a very certain way and they don't even though they know they have homeless people they don't want those nice people in their homes to have to see homeless people right and so on so archaeologically i think it could be difficult i I suppose the only way if the physical is wiped away the way we look at it is like with digital archaeology, um, the internet recording these incidents and uploading to the net, and that, and certainly in years to come, and this is part of another project I'm working on, um, <laughs> uh, um, archaeology archaeologists in the future, I think will be looking perhaps more so to the World Wide Web and to excavate the World Wide Web in order to be able to uncover the people of the 20th and 21st century. Because I think that the way things are going, people who are further down the social ladder are going to become fainter and fainter within the physical because of government policy throughout the world. And that's a really sad thing to think about. Yeah, you're right. And this reminds me of a, another episode recorded on another podcast, actually the CRM Archaeology podcast, where it was mentioned the the person doing this wasn't on the show, but we were talking about it. And it was mentioned that this person was recording in real time some of the graffiti around police stations and things right after the death of George Floyd yes. at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. Yes. And it was over in, I think, Virginia or something like that, and they were recording statues being, t- you know, torn down. They were they were taking pictures of and recording the graffiti because well-intentioned citizens the next day, and this happened in downtown Reno, were cleaning up that graffiti. Yes. They were like, "Oh, yes. our beautiful city," but then yeah. this history is as it's happening is being erased, and it's it's. One, I'm wondering when you're talking about future archaeologists, I'm wondering if our job as archaeologists with our particular skill sets. You know, we're always seen as studying the past, but we might have to study and record the present in order to study the past in the future because it's yep. being wiped out as we go. And I've thought about this as a CRM archaeologist my whole career because we, we, I work in mostly Nevada these days. I've worked all over the country, but most of these days I work in Nevada and, and California. And a lot of times what we're recording and, and using to understand the past is people's garbage, right? Yep. We're finding tin cans. We're finding glass. 
But people tend to clean up now. And not only that, but we have roadside cleanup efforts where, you know, I, I only know about the age of, a, of an old road in the desert because I can look at the trash alongside that road because <laughs> people didn't have anywhere to throw it. Right. So that's how I know how old that road yeah. is. I've got old maps and I've got the trash on the road. And I mean, I literally did a survey with my wife, who's also an archaeologist, a metal detector survey of an old path from the late 1800s. And we were able to find like wagon parts and things like that and identify the time period with which this was used. But you just can't do that now because people clean up, people do things. So it's interesting to think about that is that archaeologists might have to end up recording, you know, recording the present in order to, you know, in order to study it later and learn from it. It's it's crazy. And I I really do think that that's going to happen. I mean, this is something another project this is future ghosts and i'm i'm actually giving a paper on this at the tag conference the theoretical archaeology group conference in december that paper's going to be slightly strange because it's the session that it's running in it's called archaeologies of the near future and that's being convened by jim leary of the university of york um another another neolithic specialist and good chat (laughs) so and he's asking us to look forward 200 years into the future. So we're going 2220. Will there be archaeologists? If so, how will they do archaeology? And this is something I've pondered for years in, in various ways that perhaps 200 years into the future, I mean, if there are still humans, hopefully there are, if there are archaeologists, <laughs> if, if, if the planet is still inhabitable in the sense that we can go outside to do field work i mean we don't know if that will be the case but i think that the the internet um as it is now i mean if if we think in the past sort of 20 30 years how technology has sped up and uh, you know the things that we have now what we're going to have 200 years into the future i sort of like to think that archaeologists in 2220 won't have trowels they would have got rid of the trowels they would have got rid of the magnetometers all that the drones and they will be excavating via search engines advanced search engines right and they will be going through the stratigraphy of people's online um, lives so to speak through whether that's through social media shopping dating perhaps and that's romantic dating people not archaeological dating or maybe you know um (laughs) and all the facet you know what they watch on tv what music they listen to i mean there's so much that brings up something too because all, all these sources of data for people like for example when you said what you watch on tv like my wife and i we don't we don't have cable like a lot of people in this generation we watch plenty of netflix yeah and we watch plenty of hulu and hbo max and and those services are recording what we watch on tv yeah. but who's going to have access to that it, who has access to that now for that matter you know like who, <laughs> who could even see that now if if somebody Somebody famous dies, right? And and then somebody wants to study their life and write an autobiography. Can they even go to Netflix and say, give me their their viewing history? I don't think that Netflix would give it to them. And in that case, going along the lines of the internet in general, the internet only exists if two things happen. One, you have electricity. And two, you know how to read the data and you, can, you have the ability and the equipment to do that. So if a cataclysm happened tomorrow and we lost power across the entire planet, you know, some solar flare destroyed everything <laughs> and we're back to the literal dark ages, 
the internet's all great to have that history, but we're not going to be able to read it, you know, and then enough time goes by and people won't even know if, if even one generation goes by, there's not going to be people that even know if they did reestablish electricity. Okay. Now how do we turn these computers on? Is the data even viable? Is it still good? Is it, you know, it's just, it's so volatile and, and, you know, you're talking 200 years in the future, man. I wonder if there's going to be anything here 200 years into the future. If something happens between now and then it's crazy. I'm now feeling quite depressed. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking HD Wells, Jules Verne version of the future, you know, <laughs> flying cars and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope that happens. Like that. Trust me. No, no. But yeah, no, but you're absolutely yeah. right. And also I think, I mean, as you say, if we can't access, but if we can access it, I mean, because hope. I mean, I don't know if, if we are around in two hundred years. If there is electricity, or we've got these amazing <laughs> generators around the world that we've managed to yeah. get working with piggy poo as they did in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I mean, who knows? <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I'm being polite for the listeners. <laughs> so, but yeah, and we can exploit that. And also, I'd, I like to think, and this is me going out on one, I suppose, that perhaps archaeologists of the future will be like the the mediums so you know we have mediums now who can connect with spirits and uh, so they purport that perhaps our future archaeologists will be mediums and they're connecting with the people of the 20th and the 21st century through digital Ouija boards that they're going in they're, they're finding search engines or whatever and they're managing to get back into the past and not just look at individuals as we do as archaeologists, but also, you know, the events that you were talking about just a short while ago with the Black Lives Matter protests and not just that, but going way back. I mean, I think it's it's, it's, it's a dichotomy. It's, it's a real catch-22, isn't it, in the sense that there's a fear of being filmed all the time. I was talking with someone about this last night. I'm, I'm a big fan of J.G. Ballard, a huge fan of J.G. Ballard. And this, this thing that, and Ballard says, you know, people wanted to be observed. They just want to be observed. And that's why things like Big Brother and that became, the, the programme became so popular. And in Britain, we have a huge amount of CCTV cameras. There's all this stuff. And nobody really seems to be bothered and I find it really strange that all these people who are anti-government conspiracy theorists yada 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 are refusing to wear masks and it's like well come on they're giving you carte blanche to wear masks that's the best thing because yeah. they can't see your face so you can just <laughs> go and do stuff mess it up a bit so yeah not that I'm purporting to anyone to do that you know well you can if you want but um yeah so I find that kind of odd right but we have all these cameras and things and um Part of me, when I go out filming and watching people, if they're cleaning up monuments and so on, I try not to video people's faces. I try to video the act. Sure. Um, because of people. But I think it has to be done, though, because like you said, they are erasing history. One, one aspect of history, a horrible part of history, has been brought down, and quite rightly so. But then people are coming in, like you said, with the best intentions, but not always, because in Britain it was far right people that were doing this, are then themselves erasing that history that has literally just occurred within the previous 24 hours. I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a mind boggler. 
I, I feel like we could just continue talking about this for you know <laughs> several more hours, and perhaps we will. We should have you back on to keep talking about these because there's so many things oh, thank you. that you sent us that we didn't even get a chance to talk about. So thank you, that's kind. Thank you so much for coming on, and and I hope that as this research progresses, we can bring you back on for a status update. I'm really interested to hear how your experiment with the stickers goes and what you can what you can learn from that around the world, and and I think that would be uh, just just really fun to. Really fun to learn about and, and see where it's going. And, and I'm hopeful and yet terrified at where the world is going. But perhaps we as archaeologists can can learn from that. And we might not learn from it immediately or the society won't learn from what we tell them immediately. They might not learn from what you're saying immediately. Yeah. But hopefully somebody 100 years from now when they're trying to recreate human society can find this research and say, wow, we should make that mistake again. <laughs> so, That's what my mom keeps yeah. telling me. <laughs> uh, thank you. Right? right? <laughs> All yeah. right. So, well, thank you, Rebecca, for coming on. And we'll be back next week. Actually, next week on the Archaeology Show, we've got a lot of good shows coming up. Next week, we have a crossover episode with the Historical Yarns podcast mm. about Neanderthals making <gasps> yarn 40,000 years ago. So that's going to be great. That sounds um, I know. Yeah, and then the episode after that, I just I never have this many schedules, so I have to tell our audience. The episode after that, we have a gentleman coming on to talk about historic fuels. I don't even Ooh. know what that means. Fuel used in history and, and prehistory and things like that. So that's well, going to be, be fascinating as well. A lot of good topics. So thanks again, Rebecca, and thanks to our audience for listening, and we will see you guys next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.